was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. Today, I am honored to welcome Broadway star James Dibus to the show. James Dibus starred in the original productions of Do I Hear Waltz and Pacific Overtures on Broadway, and his other Broadway credits include Via Galactica, The Scarlet Pimpernel, Sunset Boulevard, 42nd Street, and George M. He was assistant director on the musical Truckload, and his touring credits include Guys and Dolls, 42nd Street, Hello Dolly, Pacific Overtures, Camelot with John Raitt, and more. He was also in Jesus Christ Superstar at the Paper Mill Playhouse and in To Kill a Mockingbird regionally as Bob Ewell. And a note about this episode is that you will hear him mention a legacy page for the Actors Fund that he was developing when this interview took place. That page is now up online and the link is in the episode description. So I know you must be eager to hear about this amazing career. So without further ado, James Dibus. So, how did you first get interested in theater? As a child growing up on the south side of Chicago, um, my family was not at all, uh, we're not theater goers, but we did go to the movies a lot. And that started it for me. All I had to do was see Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers or Gene Kelly, and I was hooked. I would go to the, we had a movie, uh, a movie house uh, about four blocks from where we lived. And on, I would go to the Saturday matinees and sometimes see double and triple features. <laughs> and, and I would see all of those wonderful 20th Century Fox and MGM musicals and uh, all those wonderful, like I said, leading men, Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly and Donald O'Connor and Dan Daly and, I was hooked from the get-go. So did you begin to pursue acting at school or locally? Or? Well, I'll tell you what, when, as I was growing up, because I was kind of a rambunctious kind of kid, <laughs> my parents thought the best way for me to stay seated was to take piano lessons. So they gave me piano lessons when I was, I think I started when I was about eight years old. And uh, I was still bouncing around on the piano seat that I was playing the piano. So they thought, okay, maybe we better give him tap dancing lessons because they knew that I liked all those tap dancers in the movies. So they enrolled me in a local South side of Chicago school. I started taking tap dancing lessons and acrobatic lessons. And before you knew it, I was at my first recital, singing how you're gonna keep them down on the farm after they've seen Paris. <laughs> I don't know where that came from or how I even remember it, but I remember it not as if it were yesterday. It's a, a fun remembrance of my childhood. 
going to tap class and acrobatics, things like that, which kind of came in handy later, which we'll get to later. <laughs> you know? So where did you begin to study in terms of college and what did you begin to study? Well, let me just go on a little bit. When I lived in Chicago, I used to, oh, there's a still very famous theater called the Chicago Theater. And now touring companies play it. But when I was a kid and I was growing up, what they would do is they would show movies. And then after the movie was a stage show oh. with a full orchestra and different stars would be there, all kinds of singing stars. Ella Fitzgerald was there and Frank Sinatra was there and Betty Grable was there and uh, Dorothy L'Amour, who you don't probably know about, was there and Van Johnson was there and singing groups like the Four Aces. And I used to get up every morning, go to church at five o'clock in the morning, then do my paper route and then get on the train, which was just two blocks from where we lived and go to downtown Chicago to the Chicago theater. I'd be the first in line, get my 25 cent ticket <laughs> and see the film at 10 a.m. I'd be in the first row and the stage show would start. The lights would go up on that curtain. I would hear that full orchestra start to play. And yeah, I, you know, I'll tell you, I was really hooked, Charles. I, I, uh, that's all I needed to see and to hear was that wonderful entertainment, that wonderful music. And it, you know, even as a young kid, it did something for my soul. Yeah. So I, I continued to uh, do that and uh, watch and see and want to learn. And uh, in school, uh, I remember I went through elementary school and while I was in elementary school, I started a, a Friday night record hop. I was like the DJ <laughs> and we danced to all the hits of the 50s on Friday nights. I did that. That was kind of my uh, beginning to start to get with groups of people and dancing and doing things. Always what we call jitterbugging and now they call swing dancing. Um, did that and uh, went on to high school and in high school in Chicago I did a couple of shows people asked me if I would do shows but I would be and they wanted me to do them because we would have Friday night sock hops at the school as well and I would go and dance with my partner Gloria and there would usually be a group of people around us clapping and doing all this and we'd be doing our stuff and what have you so the next thing I knew is that I saw that there was an ad in the newspaper for a local dance contest that was sponsored by the Chicago Sun-Times newspaper. And one of the categories was called high school rock and roll, which was really swing dancing, jitterbugging, Lindy, whatever you wanna call it. So I went with my friend Carla and we did a couple of auditions. We made the finals and we finally got into this big dance contest called the Harvest Moon Festival, which was held at the Chicago Stadium, which held 2,200 people, 2,000 plus people. And the show was held in like a boxing ring in the middle of the stadium. And it was sponsored by a columnist from the Chicago Sun-Times called Irkupsenet. 
And there were all kind of wonderful celebrities that would do their acts or sing or what have you, like Carol Channing was there and Zsa, Zsa Gabor was there. I remember asking Zsa, Zsa Gabor for her autograph and she was in such a hurry. She just wrote one Zsa down. <laughs> And uh, all kind of wonderful, uh, Charlton Heston was there, different stars in between the different kind of contests that they have for the waltz and the cha-cha and the tango and my category, high school rock and roll. So Carla and I went up there, we did our thing and lo and behold, we won first place wow. uh, at the Harvest Moon Festival. And uh, I, I think we won a... Um, a, uh, a, a record player and a couple of dollars and things like that. And of course, such an honor because we had worked, we worked the whole routine. And one of our big kind of surprise things in our routine was uh, she would go under my arm and I'd twirl her around and then I'd flip her over my back, right? Oh. And then she'd turn around and then she'd flip me over her back. And the audience would scream when they saw that. So. <laughs> Again, that was kind of my first real performing in front of a big audience. I mean, you know, 2,200 people is nothing to <laughs> thumb your nose at. Anyhow, we had a great time. It was wonderful. And um, like I said, it was kind of my start in show business, the Harvest Moon Festival uh, Rock and Roll Championship, 1957. We were rocking around the clock. <laughs> And then after that, I continued, I, um, I was still in high school and I continued, um, you know, wanting to learn more about theater. I'd go into the library of our high school and they had, they would get the um, uh, um, Theater World magazine. I think it was called Theater World. And each month I would wait for the new one and see they would have complete theater arts magazine. They would have complete plays in them. So I would read the plays and read about all the shows and different things that were happening on Broadway. And I just couldn't wait. I just couldn't wait to do it. And one of my friends in school said that her sister was studying dance with a professional teacher in downtown Chicago. And that maybe I should go if I were really interested and maybe I could start taking classes. So I looked the school up and they were holding Edna McCray was the teacher's name. And it was the Edna McCray studio in downtown Chicago. And they were having a summer course, a five week summer course. So I went and I enrolled in the summer course five days a week and I was learning, I never thought I'd have to learn ballet. I wanted to be like Jean Kelly and Fred Astaire. But she said, if you want to dance and if you want to dance professionally, your basis has to be ballet. All right. So she told me that I had to go out and get tights. I said, do I have to wear those tight things? I said, can I wear like bell bottoms like Jean Kelly does in the movies? She said, no, when you're working at the bar, you have to have on tights. So I went and got my first pair of tights. Um, took the class for that summer. And then she offered me a scholarship. She offered me a two-year scholarship. She said, I think you really want to do this, don't you? I said, yeah, I do. Well, 
how about how would you like to come and study? You're going to need a, two good years of study in order for you to go out and start working professionally. She said, we don't have 10 years for you to learn. We have to stuff it in you like a sausage and you're going to have to learn quickly. <laughs> you're going to have to learn quickly. So there I was. And I'm telling you, it was really a complete immersion because I had classes from 10 a.m. to 8.30 p.m. Monday through Friday, and also classes on Saturday from noon till 6 p.m. And they were classes in ballet, they were classes in tap, they were classes in character dancing, which included flamenco, we had to learn to play the castanets, and all of kind of ethnic dances, and classes in pas de deux, how to work and lift, you know, work with a partner with, and how to partner. And uh, my teacher told me at the time, it's because of her that I'm probably still in pretty good health. She said, you're gonna have to start going to a gym because you're gonna have to be lifting girls on your shoulder and picking them up in the air and doing all of that. I said, all right, well, it happened that there was a gym not too far away. So I started going and working out at the gym with weights and doing all the crunches and other kind of things I had to do to strengthen my core. So anyhow, I did that and I studied on that scholarship for two years and she was tough. This teacher was really tough. You had to know what the hell you were doing or else it was out. And she would say, she would make us write on the blackboard. She'd say, um, for this exercise, I want to have a three, four, note value kind of music. Name me four kinds of three, four music. And I said this, that, and the other thing. And a pollinate. I would go pollinate. She says, it's not a pollinate problem. It's a pollinate from Poland. I want you to go to the blackboard and write down the name and write it down in note values. I mean, that was the kind of training that we had. She said, we don't spit on music and we don't spit on the French language. It's called a fouette, spelled F-O-U-E-T-T-E -E, with an accent a on the E. It's not a forte, it's a fouette. So my training, my dance training was so extraordinary and so complete because of Edna McRae. I, I really owe my career to her because she taught me discipline. She taught me to show up on time, to be my very best all the time and how to focus what it was I was doing. So two years with Edna McRae, and the first thing that I auditioned for was, um, it was a state fair tour that had a group of 12 dancers, um, eight young women and four guys. And we traveled to different wonderful cities like Ionia, Michigan. <laughs> Have you ever heard of Ionia, Michigan? I hadn't. But there we were at the state fair, dancing to I've Got Rhythm and Fascinating Rhythm and uh, yeah, different kind of things like that. And, uh, you know, it was fun because it was the first time that I was away from home and traveling to different places. And Charles getting paid for doing what I love to do with a lot of fun people. You know, it was my first union was if that was AGVA, A-G-V-A. That was my very first union. And I did that tour, had a wonderful time doing it, met some terrific people uh, and several that I stayed friends with 
for a long, long time. Um, I just lost one of them. She passed away just last year. She was a lifelong friend who I adored by the name of Maureen Burns. And another pal, Lenny Jennings, who sends me all of these uh, uh, emails every now and then. He said, remember the time that we met Buster Keaton or we were on that train and we were going to uh, live in those uh, 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 wigwam tents in Oklahoma? <laughs> I, I forgot all about that. All I remember is that we went from city to city to city. We traveled by train and uh, it was a lot of fun. And like I said, we were getting paid for it. So I did that fair tour. I came back to Chicago continued my lessons. And what my teacher did was she had another, within my scholarship, there was another fund that was left by one of the other, uh, one of the other people in the uh, dance uh, students, um, a fund to be used for whatever else might add to your professional life, whether it be in the theater or whether it be in a dance company, whatever it might be. So she said, I have some other scholarship money here for you. If you can, would like to take vocal voice lessons, take what you need to pay your lesson every week, take the cash out. And when you start working professionally, you can pay it back for the next person so that the next person will have the money to study what they want to. So. I was studying in that same building. It was called the Fine Arts Building at 410 South Michigan in Chicago. In that same building was a voice teacher and I went to study with him and there began my vocalizing, mom, 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 you know, the things that we do as singers. And I learned, worked on material to use at auditions and things like that. So. It was all good, Charles. It was all good. My studying with Miss McRae and then my voice lessons and my first venture into touring and getting paid for what I loved doing. I came back and studied again, kept studying, I should say, and auditioned for a, um, a gentleman who was the producer and director choreographer of these nightclub reviews called uh, The Hits of Broadway. And his name was Bob Simpson. And there was a place in Milwaukee, Wisconsin called Fazio's on Fifth, owned by the Fazio brothers, Tony, Louie, Joey, and Eddie Fazio, the Fazio brothers. Um, we had a lot of guys come. <laughs> like this we didn't know who they were where they were whatever but anyhow it was a it was the place to go it was a supper club people could go and have dinner and then we did uh the show hits of broadway or the straw hat review which were just musical numbers from all the broadway shows we had to learn i don't know 15 16 17 numbers for a show we do two shows a night and the company was get this a woman organist who was on a big, big old organ where she had to use the pedal clavier, you know, where they work the, the feet as well as their hands. We had to put a screen in front of her because she was, she would really steal a show because she'd be so frantic on the organ <laughs> and a drummer. And we do um, different 
shows based on whatever we did, a Christmas show with all kinds of Christmas songs. And uh, we did other hits of Broadway. Uh, I remember uh, um, Showtime on Broadway. It's just, a, it's one of those wonderful sights. The hustle, the bustle, the traffic, the glare, the da, 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 da. Remember Oklahoma, it was packed with fun. And that pistol packing mama, Annie, get your gun. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful town. Can, can dress up in a Paris gown. London Bridge is London, falling down, falling down, falling down. London Bridge is falling down, my fair lady. Now, how the hell do I remember that? from 1961. I don't know. I mean, I must have had such fun doing it or learning it that it's just in my brain. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Um, I mean, anyhow, that was, Bob Simpson had these wonderful reviews and it was such a great training ground because there were maybe uh, five women and three guys or four and four, it would change kind of. We do the show for about five, six weeks, and then we change and do a new show, the same bunch of people. So we were really like a wonderful family. And and we worked with each other. We did numbers with each other. We did solos, duets, quartets, um, whatever. And uh, from Fazio's on Fifth, Bob asked me if I would like to open a a new hotel, uh, not a new hotel, but a new showroom in a hotel in Chicago called the Del Prado Hotel. And we were going to do the hits of Broadway and open it on uh, New Year's Eve. And I said, yep, absolutely. Count me in. I want to be a part of this. So there we were at the Del Prado Hotel, several of us who had done a show before doing these excerpts from Broadway shows called the hits of Broadway. The reviewers came in, rave reviews. The place was packed every night and we stayed there for several months. We changed that show many times as well. And then, and then get this Charles. And then because we were such a big hit, Bob Stimson, the director, producer, choreographer said, we have an offer to do this show, to do our show at the Edgewater Beach Hotel here in Chicago, which is a very, wonderful, well thought of, historic building. And they had a a showroom there in the Edgewater Beach Hotel. So we took our show there and we we started doing it there, changing the show every six weeks. We had a new show that we put in. The reviewers would come in every six weeks. They would rave about the show every six weeks and the place would be mobbed. I mean, and we would do two shows a night, six nights a week. I mean, two shows a night, six nights a week. And we had a wonderful suite in the Edgewater Beach Hotel that was our green room. So we could go up between shows and kind of, you know, get into our street clothes and hang out a little bit and have a a Coca-Cola and some French fries or whatever we were eating in those days, you know, and get ready to do the second show. So, and then we were getting attention from the critics, which was wonderful. there was a woman who was a critic by the name of Anne Barzell. She was a dance critic, but she also did reviews for around town. And this woman was amazing. She really put us on the map. She would talk about us all the time in the newspaper. And 
she would she was also a collector she would collect and save everything she had pavlova's toe shoes she had home movies when she was a young woman she would take her movie camera black and white film and stand in the wings of different places because she was a part of the dance world and take all of these home movies of wonderful people like Pavlova and things like that. Anyhow, Miss Barzell saved everything. And I used to send her, when I then started working and traveling and doing my reviews of, from different shows and playbills and stuff like this. And somebody told me, you know what? The Newberry Library in Chicago has all of Anne Barzell's archives and there's a file on you. I said, a file on me? What could be in there? So I went and I took a look. She saved everything I sent her. All of those playbills, all of the things I had forgotten about, postcards that I would send her. I said, dear Miss Barzell, here we are in Des Moines, Iowa, having a great time. <laughs> so she had all of these things are archived and in Miss Barzell's file. They now have added, added an Anne Barzell room, reading room and there's her archives. And so after I saw all of these things, I said to the woman who was the archivist at the Newberry Library in Chicago, I said, tell me, you know, I, I've saved a lot of my stuff. I'm a Chicago boy. Would you like to have any of it? She said, send it all. I said, no, I don't think you want it all. I don't think you want it all. She said, yes, send whatever you can. So what I've done over the years is I, I get those uh, boxes that you can get at the post office that holds three pounds or something like that. And you can send it for one price. And whenever I find something uh, around the apartment, I just throw it in the box that's in the closet and let the box stay there until I can't, you know, still jiggling around. And then I take it to the post office and send it over to the Newberry Library. So there's a lot, a lot of stuff there. It's, it's pretty terrific. A wonderful woman by the name of Allison Hinderleiter is the archivist there now, and she does one heck of a job. It's just good to know that stuff is being preserved. All kinds of, she has all kinds of wonderful things from all kinds of people that are now archived at the Newberry Library. So, you know, the beat goes on. You just keep doing what you're doing. Put first things first, um, show up. I always say, suit up, show up and say yes. That's been my motto. Suit up, show up, and say yes. And just leave the results to the universe. You, know, you never know what's going to happen. You just have to put, take the action. Take the action. Put yourself out there and then do your very best based on all of the training you've had. And I must say, even when I was working, I continue to take class continue to take class and voice lessons and acting class. You know, very, very important uh, to keep learning, to keep getting new information in. Never stops, it never stops. I, I was really lucky, I moved to New York after I worked for Bob Simpson and did these fair tours and different things. I moved to New York City and um, uh, so the 
I don't know, I read a book or maybe show business or backstage newspaper or something, talked about having an agent and I had to have an agent. When I moved to New York, I moved here because a very close friend of mine's cousin was a woman by the name of Arlene Galanka. Now Arlene went on to play, I think the role on the Andy Griffith show was called Millie. She was the waitress and she was here in New York and working as an actress. And she shared an apartment with a couple of other actresses. We call everybody actor now these days. <laughs> uh, Valerie Harper was one of her roommates. Iva March was another one of her, Nancy Cheevers. So Valerie Harper then became a friend of mine. And one day she said, have you ever thought about going acting class? She said, I'm studying with a wonderful teacher by the name of Mary Tarsai. And she's really good. I think you might enjoy her class. So I went and I met with Mary Tarsai and started studying with her. And she was just, she really gave me the basics that I needed to have then. Talked uh, about uh, um, the specifics of acting, how we had to be specific in our choices and about subtext. And she was one of the first teachers, acting teachers in New York to teach a class about auditioning as an actor and the three different, three different venues that you could audition in and how you have to kind of um, uh, change a bit the way you present yourself within whether it's in a rehearsal room, you know, like a, a rehearsal studio, or whether it's in an office over a desk, or whether it's on the stage. How do you prepare for each of those different kinds of places? You, know, you have to be a little bit bigger on the stage because just because of what the venue is. And in an office across the table from whoever you're reading with or to, or four, it's more like a film technique where you just have to bring everything down a little bit. But she also taught us how when you're auditioning for a role, you only have X amount of minutes to show them what you got. Yeah. So try to bring as much color and variation into what it is you're reading. Let them see the highs and the lows of what that character is. And I, that also goes with songs as well. Pick out a song or two, your, your ballad and your uptune, learn it so you could do it backwards and give it all you got. And you can use those two, I've used two songs mostly for my whole career. Oh, and what songs? What songs? I used to sing a song from Roar the Grease Paint called Feeling Good. Do you know that song? Bird flying high, you know how I feel. Oh, yes, yes, I do. I used to sing, that was my ballad. And another newly song I sang for my uptune called, um, it was from Dr. Doolittle, but I, I did it in a different tempo. Um, 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 uh, 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 stand well back, I'm coming through. 
nothing can stop me now. No, it, it wasn't that. It was the crossroads of life was the name of the song that I used for my uptune. Here I stand at the crossroads of life, childhood behind me, the future to come, and alone. That was my uptune. It went by with a bright two rhythm. Use that song for 25 years, use them both. And I would adjust them to whatever, uh, whatever shows that I was auditioning for, you know? And I have to tell you, Charles, many of the shows, several of the shows that I auditioned for, I had to tell Fibs to get the part. <laughs> I had to tell Fibs several times because the name of the game is get the gig, right? Yeah. So you have to do what you have to do to get the job. So I remember, I'm digressing a little bit, but um. I remember auditioning for my very first Broadway show. Um, prior to that, broad, let me let me just say this first. Prior to that, doing my audition for my first Broadway show, an agent that I I found an agent. The agent said that he would represent me. It was Gus Shermer Jr., whose father had the Shermer Music Company, and Gus Shermer was a wonderful agent. Handled uh, Sandy Duncan, handled. Um, Oh, Florence Henderson, some wonderful people. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So anyhow, he sent me out to audition for this musical called Tobarich. I knew that it had been playing on Broadway with Vivian Lee and Jean-Pierre Omar, but it was gonna be a summer tour with, are you ready? Yes. Ginger Rogers. I said, Ginger Rogers? And I knew that there was a big, dance number or a big Charleston number. So I went and I was so nervous when I went into audition. She wasn't there, but I went to audition and I, I sang one of those songs, I'm sure, or maybe not, not for this. I, I'm trying to think. And I had to read and dance and I got the job. So there I was, it was like, wow, you have to pinch me. I'm dancing with Ginger Rogers to a, a song called Wilkes Berry PA. Take me back where I belong, ba bum bum Wilkes-Barre, PA. And Ginger and I would go out. We started the tour in Dallas, Texas, at the Dallas State Fair Musicals, and um, took it to Atlanta, took it to uh, 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 Minneapolis, uh, and a couple of places in between. And we started out doing one, we, we staged one encore for Wilkes-Barre PA because Ginger got her start when she was a kid in a Charleston contest. And uh, so of course she was, she was flying high doing this. So we did the number, the audience loved it. They loved seeing Ginger doing the Charleston. And we'd go out into the wings after we did our going off step into the wings and she would say, oh, we go out and do the, the encore we do it once and then we come off after the encore and she would say, come on, let's do another one. Let's go out there and do it again. So by the time the tour was over, <laughs> we were, Charles, we were doing five encores to Wilkes-Barre PA and the audience just ate it up. And I couldn't believe that. I couldn't believe that I was 
with Ginger Rogers dancing this number. And we were, by this time, became pals. You know, she'd say, what are you doing tonight? You want to come up to my suite and have some meatballs and spaghetti? I'm making a salad or something like that. And her mom, her mother traveled with her, her lovely, lovely woman. So I have terrific memories. And I had just come off of that tour of Tabarich with uh, Ginger Rogers feeling so high. And when this audition for Do I Hear a Waltz for Richard Rogers came up, I said, okay, I'll, I'll go. So I met, went to the casting, met the casting director. My agent set up the appointment. His name was Eddie Blum for Rogers and Hammerstein. And I <clears throat> told him a bit about myself and we talked across the table. Um, and um, he said, well, I have to tell you, Mr. Rogers really wants only Italians to play the part of these Italians. I was to play a reading for the role of the leading man, Sergio Franchi's son. So uh, he said, I said, well, I said, as a matter of fact, my name has been shortened from Daibicelli. I said, I've, I've shortened it so that it would read better in a program. I'm, you know, uh, Italian. <laughs> he said, he gave me the script and he said, well, how would you read this line? My most little sister, she is ill. Would you say this takes place? It's not, that's a nice Italian. This is Venice. Would you say sister or sister? I said, you know, mezzamets. I went and used my hands. Like I said, mezzamets, somewhere in between that. I said, oh, okay. <laughs> so I had another, I had a callback. And then I would meet Richard Rogers on the stage of the 46th Street Theater, which is now the Richard Rogers Theater. I was to meet Mr. Rogers and Stephen Sondheim, who I had, the only thing I knew was that he wrote West Side Story. You know, Stephen Sondheim was going to be there as well. So I thought, oh man, how am I going to really let them know that I'm Italian? <laughs> so. I knew that the play was a musical adaptation of Arthur Lawrence's play, The Time of the Cuckoo. So I went to the Lincoln Center Library for the Performing Arts. Oh, let me give them a shout out. Are we lucky to be here in New York and have that extraordinary venue, that place to go to, to research any and everything related to the performing arts. Incredible people work there. Incredible people are there in the dance division, in the theater division. It's just an amazing place. So anyhow, I, uh, I got the time of the cuckoo and I looked to see who played the role that I was going to be auditioning for in the musical. His name was Ruggiero Romor. So Charles, I picked up, in those days we had telephone books. <laughs> big fat telephone books. So I picked up the telephone book and I go through the pages to see if there's a Ruggiero Romor. There could only be one named that. If there was a Ruggiero Romor listed in the telephone directory. There was. <laughs> so I had two telephones in my apartment, one in the bedroom and one in the living room. So I took one of the phones off the hook and I had one of those big old tape recorders tape recording as I made the call to Ruggiero Romor. I said, 
Hi, this is James Dibus calling. I'm auditioning for the role of Vito De Rossi for your role in a musical version of Time of the Cuckoo. I said, I have a couple of lines here I would like to read. Can you repeat them to me so I can get the correct accent, right? My most little sister, she's ill and he had to take her to the doctor. So I, I had Ruggiero and I'm recording this. He didn't know I was recording it. I was recording it and I went, got the accent down. I went through the lines with him so that when I went to the audition, I know that I'd have an authentic accent. And Arthur Lawrence wrote the book for the musical and he was also the playwright who wrote Time of the Cuckoo. He was there as well, so he'd know. And here's the capper. For my audition song, I said, you know what? I've got to sing something in Italian. So I sang, I sang Sorrento in Italian. Oh. Got the job. <laughs> I got the job. And there I was at the 46th, now 46th Street Theater playing in Do I Hear a Waltz, my first Broadway show with Sergio Franchi, Elizabeth Allen, uh, uh, Julianne Marie, Stuart Damon, Madeline Sherwood, Jack Murray, and a fantastic, wonderful Greek woman by the name of Flori Dandanakis. She said, my name is easy to remember. If you don't like us, Dandanakis. <laughs> Her real name was Eleftheria Papadantonakis but that was too much. She had shortened hers too, just like I shortened mine from Diviselli. <laughs> so anyhow, she played the maid, Giovanna, and was hysterical. We became such good friends. We just adored each other. And she moved back to Greece eventually and um, oh, several years ago left the planet. She's in, in heaven with Manos Hajidakis, who was her mentor. And uh, I was in, Greece about five years ago and I went to visit their graves. Oh. I want to ask you about Do I Hear a Waltz? It's somewhat famous for having the extreme tension between Sondheim and Richard Rogers. So did you, <laughs> did you notice any of that as you were in the show? No, not, not really. I'll tell you, I was such a novice and such a young man. I was just so thrilled to be a part of the event that I, I didn't, uh, all of those things that were going, there were a lot of tensions between several people, I must say. And uh, that, uh, uh, they didn't bring it out into the open. I mean, I never really realized it too much. However, when we were out of town at the uh, hotel in Boston, I believe, I didn't realize that oh, somebody had a room. We were all getting together, a bunch of us, and having a, like a little party at our in a hotel our hotel room, but the next room was Steve Sondheim and Arthur Lawrence, several of the other people, and we could overhear them talking about what they were saying. What we didn't realize is that they could overhear us what we were saying. So there there weren't any repercussions from any of that. But I read more about all of that tension between Mr. Rogers and uh, Steve Sondheim 
after the fact, much after the fact. I didn't realize it at the time. No, there, there were uh, more problems with the director by the name of John Dexter, who was uh, not the nicest man in the world, and I'm being kind. Yes. Um, it was a fun show to do. It was lifelong friends and some of the glorious, glorious music from that show. I don't know if you know the music from it, Charles, but if you don't, by all means, go out and get the cast album or look it up and hear some wonderful, wonderful songs. Take the moment that Sergio sings is just extraordinary. And Liz Allen, that voice of Elizabeth Allen singing someone woke up one incredible day. Wow. I mean, she was something else. I'll tell you more about her. I had the pleasure of working with her a couple of times. Um, but anyhow, that was fun. And Sergio was a lot of fun to be with. Here's a fun story from the show. I would go home between the matinee and the evening sometime, and I would make myself some Italian food. I mean, I was really had to be able to get into it. And I would make meatballs and spaghetti and lasagna, all kinds of stuff like that. And I put a lot of garlic in it and everything. And one day, Sergio goes like this. Jimmy, come here. What, Papa? I would say to him, what, Papa? He said, I have to tell you something. He said, I don't know. He said, you know, when we have our scene together, he said, oh, he said, I really can, you smell like garlic. <laughs> I said, oh, no. I said, oh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, he said, well, I just had to tell you because I wasn't eating garlic that night, but I smelled it on you. <laughs> So, all right. So I said, oh, 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 I'll do. So after that, whenever I would go home and eat, I would make sure I wouldn't put any garlic in anything. And I would wash my mouth out with, you know, Listerine like crazy before I came down from my dressing room to even have a scene with him. And then one day he went to me like this. What, Papa? He said, you smell like a drugstore. <laughs> He had a really good sense of smell. He could smell the Listerine, you know. So anyhow, we had a running joke about that. And uh, and um, I was on the SS Norway. I, I got a job. Oh, I'm, I wanted to give, give this to you. In. <laughs> um, oh, I'll tell you the story. I got a job on the SS Norway, the cr cruise ship, oh. playing the role of Barnum in the musical Barnum. Now, the theater on the SS Norway was a 600-seat theater with a balcony, and um, we did the, the whole show. The music was recorded on a time track, but it was the whole show. No, I'm sorry, it was kind of a cut-down version of the show um, because we did it in just one act. And um, Oh, one... one one night after the show, I, I come out and I go into, into the theater portion and who's sitting in the audience but Sergio Franchi. I said, Papa, what are you doing on the SS Norway? He said, I open next week. I, I'm doing my club act next week here. How wonderful. I said, so I said, you saw the show? He said, no, I'm just sitting here. He was making a joke of it. <laughs> And he was really terrific and he said very kind words and what a lovely, lovely gentleman he was. He was just one of the best with one of the most glorious voices ever, ever. But on the SS Norway, I had to 
walk the high wire and sing at the same time. A song called Out There. In a land where the world is free, I would have to climb up the ladder and start to get my balance a little bit and sing the song and walk the high wire at the same time. And in the middle of the high wire, bend down on one knee, get back up and walk the rest of the way across the wire. And we were doing this, Charles, as we were, cro as we were crossing the um, uh, uh, Bermuda Triangle. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I said, no. I, you're not really doing this. And I would get before the show, every before every show, I would have them put up the rigging for me and I would just test the wire based on how the sea was that day. If we're shaky or not too shaky so that I could do it. And I made it across except one time I didn't make it across. I kept trying and trying and I would fall off. But it was only seven or eight feet above the ground, the wire, but eight feet by five, seven at the time, it, was, it seemed high to me. And if I would fall, I could grab onto the wire and then just lower myself down or at least hop down onto the floor. So what I did was I would get on the floor, I would walk back up, balance myself, start to walk again and fall again. So by the third time, I said, oh, what the hell, koala bears do this, I'm gonna do this. Up, I went upside down on the wire to the other side and got to the other platform on the other side and went, ta-da! And the audience howled, they screamed. It was fantastic, it was wonderful. <laughs> so I want to ask you about how you got involved with Jerome Robbins's theater lab. Oh, wow, you know about that, huh? Um, there was a call out, a casting call. They were looking for a company of 10 people to form the nucleus of this company that would be working on experimental theater. So I said, well, I'm gonna throw my hat in the ring. Why not go to the audition? So I went to the first audition and I sang and he liked, he liked it. Mr. Robbins, Jerry uh, liked it. And I got a call back to do a monologue or a scene or whatever. So I, I thought I had just done an off off Broadway play. I'm gonna bring my scene partner with me. It was a two-hander called With Our Bright Wings. I'm gonna bring my scene partner with me and we'll do a scene rather than just He'll have seen all these monologues all day long. It'll be like something different. So I did the monologue and he said, um, do you dance? I said, well, a little, yeah. I didn't tell him that I was a train. So I then went to the third audition and did my dance audition and I was doing pirouettes and jetés and what have you. And I think he kind of said, what? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Got the job, yeah. got the job. And it was a company of wonderful, wonderful people. It was um, James Mitchell, who was Agnes DeMille's leading dancer. Uh, 
and was a movie actor too, did The Turning Point, and then became a big soap opera star on, um, oh, I don't, I don't remember. I never watched soap opera, so I don't remember. Uh, but he, uh, he played um, Palmer Cortland, All My Children, I think it was. Palmer Cortland, he became a big star on that. He was already a stage and did several movies. He was in the bandwagon. So it was James Mitchell, Catherine Damon, who then on, went on to do the uh, series Soap. Um, Leonard Fry, who was in Fiddler on the Roof with Jerry. Julia McGinnis, who was in Fiddler on the Roof with Jerry. Um, uh, Jerry Ragney, who would, who would be sitting, we would be working on our improv exercises and different things we do. And he'd be sitting against the wall with a pad of yellow lined paper and writing and writing and writing. And I went up to him one day, I said, what are you writing, Raggles? What's all this writing as we're doing our improvs? He says, I'm writing a musical. I said, oh, you're doing what? Because Jerry Ragney at the time had kind of long hair and he was really kind of a kooky, kind of, kind of wonderful kooky guy. I'm writing a music. I said, what are you going to call it? He said, hair. I said, hair. <laughs> I laughed. He said, you'd be great in it. I would. Okay. So anyhow, uh, Jerry was in it. Leonard Fry, Julia McGinnis, uh, Aaron Martin, who had danced for Jerry Robbins and Opus uh, 57, and uh, James Moore, also a, a Robbins dancer. So it was a, a wonderful company of people. Uh, oh, uh, Barry Primus, a wonderful actor, and Cliff Gorman, who went on to play Lenny on Broadway. So we were kind of a wonderful bunch of people, and we worked on all kinds of things. It was truly, Jerry would give us exercises and things to do. And three times a week, a um, modern dance choreographer and teacher, very well-known and respected in the dance world. Anna Sokolow would come in to give us movement for actors. And she was one of the gifts of being a part of that company for me because Anna and I became lifelong dear friends, as did Jimmy Mitchell and Skipper Damon, Catherine Damon. I mean, really good friends. And um, so we would do the, our exercises. We worked, we would work on, um, uh, um, Lee Harvey Oswald's diary and we would do it as though uh, with masks we would do it mime we would do it all different kinds of ways we would we would take Lee Harvey Oswald's diary and do takes on it and it was amazing, it was amazing. Everybody's kind of got to know what almost, what the other person was gonna do next. We became so close to each other and we worked so closely with each other and Jerry was always there, you know, being the puppeteer. Yeah. Doing, we had a big, I'll tell you this, we had a big um, happening. He would bring in other people to work with us and do things. We had a, 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 a Jay Harnick came in, Sheldon Harnick's brother, and we worked on um, um, doing the uh, death walking scene. I mean, the sleepwalking scene from the Scottish play um, with masks and different things. Um, 
different people would come in to give us different kind of classes throughout this. And uh, oh, oh, happening, we did a happening. He brought in Robert Wilson, Bob Wilson, you know, they, who does all of the big seven hour shows at the Brooklyn Academy. Oh. And um, he brought Bob in who was here just, he was new starting just in New York from Texas for not too long. And we blackened all the light in the room. We had saran wrap and day glow paint on ourselves. And we were all asked to bring in portable radios. So while this was all going on and we were making sounds and noises and moving within the saran wrap that we had painted with uh, day glow paint and the portable radios going off and on to different stations. I mean, it was truly a happening in the blackness of this room. And Jerry had invited uh, Leonard Bernstein was there. And I, I don't know that Steve was there, but I remember seeing Lenny Bernstein being there. Um, so we would do all kinds of extraordinary things. And we were hoping that we would, we were invited to Spoleto to go and take our work and do it there. We were working on a uh, um, um, no, not, there was a no drama. We were working on a Brecht play called The Measures Taken, which was based on a Japanese no drama. He had a woman come in and teach us movements of the Japanese no drama, which are very slow moving and very, all of a sudden the hand becomes a very important thing. Each finger becomes something important. And it's done very slowly. And we were doing all of these things, the measures taken in the style of the Japanese no drama as well. Um, Tanako was the name of the play that it was adapted from, that Brecht adapted it from. And did I know, did I say, you, you just, you know, Charles, you just never know yeah. what it is you're learning or new adventure having at the time, how it is going to be a part of your life later on. You just have to dunk yourself in each of the experiences and give it your best shot. Just learn as much as you can and keep learning and dunking yourself. Did I know that years later I would be hired to do Pacific overtures and I would be doing those movements, those Japanese no movements in Pacific overtures all those years later. I mean, oh, and that was another thing I had to get in because Hal Prince wanted an all Asian cast. Oh. And I told him, yes, I said, my mother is Filipino. So I'm partially Asian. Oh, yeah. I got the show. I mean, not only because of that, I had just, I sang feeling good for that show because I, to me, it, the words of the song reminded me of a Japanese woodcut. You know, the images, bird flying high, sun in the sky, breeze drifting by. And I wore a sport jacket and I turned the collar over so that it looked like a Mandarin coll collar, oh. you know? Yeah. And I sang the song and it was one of the few times, I think the only time that they told me 
on the spot that I had the job. I was the last one cast. I was the last person cast in that show. And, you know, the rest is history, cups of tea and history and someone in a tree. Oh, wow. Did I luck out with that one? Did I luck out with that one? To be given that wonderful material, to work uh, again with Pat Birch. You know, that was another thing that came into play just prior to that. I had a dear friend who was a casting director by the name of Vinnie Liff. Oh. Vinnie Liff. And Vinnie Liff was a gem of a person. He was a fantastic, beautiful human being that left the planet too soon. And Vinnie Liff recommended me to Pat Birch to be her assistant in a show called Truckload. And I did that for her. We rehearsed the show. We never opened the show because there was a newspaper strike and all kinds of things were going on um, with that show. Um, <laughs> that, that shouldn't have been going on. Anyhow, we never opened, but I became really good pals with Pat because I was there by her side all the time, taking notes and making sure that the next day she knew and remembered what we had done the day before. So here was Pat Birch on, you know, on Pacific Overtures again. I'm sure her knowing me and how I worked was part of the reason that I got the job as well. And boy, I've got to tell you something about Pat Birch. That woman can take anybody and make them look like they are a dancer. She really knows how to take people who aren't dancers and make them look terrific. Yeah. Because in Truckload, there weren't a lot of trained dancers, but boy, were those people moving and moving beautifully. And in Pacific Overtures, there was a song called Please Hello. And she gave me the part in that, I wanted to play the Russian Admiral because I thought, don't touch the cold, I could do that accent and it'd be funny. She said, no, no, no. She said, you're going to be the French Admiral. All right, I'll take the French Admiral. Well, once I finally got it and got to do it, <laughs> it was fantastic. I bring word, I bring word from Napoleon's absurd. You know, it was, and it was Steve's lyrics and I'm singing his music and I'm going, oh, wow. Is this like being in heaven or what? Yeah. And, and all of the people, all of the actors, wonderful, wonderful actors in Pacific Overtures, Marco, who was, you know, the head of the whole thing, held it together. Fantastic. Uh, and Sun Tech Oh and Isao Sato, Saab Shimono, who had been a friend prior to that of mine. And uh, there I was with all these extraordinary Asian actors doing Stephen Sondheim's music and being directed by Harold Prince. The Harold Prince. I mean, I, I, again, there's so many times, Charles, during the course of my career that I've had to pinch myself to say, wait, am I really working with this person? Am I really singing this person's songs? I, it's just, I've been very lucky. And 
and I've had some wonderful opportunities. I mean, there are a lot of, I, I had the great pleasure of being asked to uh, teach a class for the Kennedy Center's College Theater Festival, uh, an audition, musical theater audition technique class. And I went around the USA again, teaching at different colleges, teaching the theater department about how to audition for musicals and all the little things that people don't even realize are so important about going into an audition. How you speak to the accompanist, how you speak to your pianist, how you don't snap your fingers about a tempo that you want to him and how you, before you start your song, after you've given the instructions to the pianist, make sure that your music is marked and make sure that, uh, you know, that it's in the right key and that it's on paper that's not gonna fall off the, the piano as he's reading it. All of these little specific things that make such a big difference. Bef that is all of the stuff before you even start to sing your audition material. Yeah. And then you get into that and the subtext and how you present yourself. But I, like I said, I had, it was just really so great to be able to have that uh, time teaching. And then I was asked to teach at AMDA, an American Musical Dramatic Academy here in New York City. And I, I taught there for a semester, which was really great. Terrific students and the passion that people have, the, the, the desire to learn. You know, it, it, it's, it, you really have to have that passion and that desire it has to be burning in you to want to give of yourself as a performer to get out there and do what we do eight times a week or in front of the camera after take after take after take after take it really takes that commitment that desire and that passion i'm watching something oh don't miss this do you get disney plus yes yes oh, i do oh, okay i got it to watch hamilton again <laughs> But they're showing something on there now, Charles, that's really wonderful. I, I really uh, recommend it highly, highly, highly called On Point, P-O-I-N-T-E. It's all about students auditioning for and, uh, the School of American Ballet and to finally be a part of the annual Nutcracker that's put on. It's a six-part miniseries and it's brilliant. When you see what these young people do, how dedicated they are to the craft and how much they want to learn and how willing their parents are to support them and to support their what they do. It's just, it brought tears to my eyes. It really is an astounding, on point, yeah. Disney Plus. I, and I, I don't work, and I don't work for them. <laughs> Pardon yeah, me? I'll make sure to, to watch it. Good, 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 good. Now, where were we, Charles? Oh, well, the next thing I want to ask you about, which I believe was after the Jerome Robbins, was George M. So what was it like to be working with Joe Layton, who was, of course, a great director and choreographer? <laughs> oh, Joe Layton. God bless him. Boy, did he had ideas coming out of his ears. I mean, he just had ideas, ideas, ideas. We did so many different kinds of numbers in that show and he, we had different things that were we worked on and then had to be cut for a reason or, and if he had to cut something because we had done it uh, there was called the love ballet at one point that we had worked on which was amazing 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 
didn't really work and he had to take it out and he did but we were then able to work on other things and you know i <laughs> george m a wonderful i still have wonderful friends my wonderful friends that i met in george m and we just had our 50th anniversary re reunion at sardis a couple of years ago uh, 2018, because we opened in 1968. <laughs> and I'm still friends with Karen Baker, with Patty Mariano, with Kathy Conry, with Lonnie Ackerman, uh, uh, Billy Bob Becker, um, so many of those, Ed Goldschmidt, wonderful people. And uh, within the show, there was a vaudeville segment and Joe Layton assigned Lonnie Ackerman and I to within the vaudeville portion of the show, she and I would be, have a dog act. We were the dog trainers, oh. right? <laughs> now, I only had, I had um, one dog in my life when I was a kid. So the woman brings this woman called who wrote a book about, she had a, a company called the Animal Talent Scouts. Her name was Lorraine Essen, and she lived in Chelsea on 18th Street in a brownstone, but she had the garden apartment, the bottom floor, right? Yeah. It was called Animal Talent Scouts. And she had all of these animals in her apartment. I went to the door because I had to go and meet the dogs I was going to be working with. A great, um, a, a little um, um, a Boston Terrier and a sheepdog, a Jack Russell Terrier, excuse me, and a sheepdog. And the little dog's name was Muffet. Before I went to the apartment, I know she brought the dog, I'm going backwards. She brought the dogs to the theater, to a rehearsal. And she said, call them by their names. They weren't listening to me. They weren't coming to me. They didn't want to have anything to do with me, those dogs. She said, you're going to have to come over to the Animal Talent Scouts and have lunch with us, with me and the dogs. I said, really? <laughs> yes, you're going to have to come and have lunch with me and the dogs. Okay, all right. So I would do it on my lunch hour. And I went over to 18th Street and I knock on the door of this garden apartment. She opens the door and this big boxer comes to the door, big dog. She said, that's Lola, she'll take your paper for you. So the dog goes mm -hmm, and takes my New York Times and carries it with it. She says, be careful now, behind the door is a platypus. You have to be careful that a tail of the platypus can be lethal. <laughs> So I walked into this apartment and birds are flying from the ceiling and down. Birds are flying like dogs all over the place, kittens all over the place, little sheep, all kinds. Of <laughs> I looked out the window in the backyard and there were two llamas in the backyard. And I went to the bathroom and in the bathtub that had a wire over the top of the tub were snakes in the bathtub. <laughs> While I was going to the John, I thought, oh no. It was kind of like, so I went back out into the room. She says, come, come, we'll have lunch. She said, don't T A L K 2 M U F F E T, T A L K 2 F I 
AFI. She was telling me she didn't want me to talk to Muffet because she wanted me to put more attention to the other dog so Muffet would get jealous and come to me the next time they, he saw me. So as we were having, I was wondering out of the bowl that I was having my salad at lunch, who ate from this bowl before me? <laughs> While the birds were flying and the dogs and the cats were running around and the llamas were munching away in the backyard, the snakes were snaking around in the bathtub and I was having lunch with F-I-F-I -F -I and M-U-F-F-E-T-T. -T. So maybe only one T. But anyhow, it worked. The next time she brought him back to the theater, Muffet shoo, jumped right up on my chest and I was able to hold him. We changed Muffet's name to Spot because he had spots. And we changed the, the sheepdog's name to Frida. They were Spot and Frida. And Lonnie Ackerman and I, you know Lonnie Ackerman, who she's a wonderful, wonderful performer. And um, um, we had the dog act and our big trick was, our, our funny thing was that she would hold a big hula hoop up in the air and the dogs were supposed to come run from the wings and jump through the hoop. Well, little Muffet would go underneath the hoop and, and, <laughs> and Frida would go around the hoop. So they wouldn't want to have anything to do with the hoop at all. So then we would go da-da after it was through like we had accomplished this wonderful feat. Anyhow, it was, it was, I mean, again, you never know what you're going to be called on to do in, in any of these shows that you're called on to do. And you just have to go with the flow, suit up, show up and say yes. You know, first things first, just get to that, get over that first thing and then go on to the next. And I go to work the next day and I say, wonder what's going to happen today. Wonder what new surprises we're going to have today. You know, one day at a time, one day at a time, go in, do your work, have fun, enjoy your other cast members, be kind to each other and, and enjoy each other's talents. And that was an extraordinary cast. We had some really talented people in that show. Yeah. And I want to ask you about working with Joel Gray, who was the star. Ah, well, what can you say? You know, what can you say about Joel Gray? He's He's a consummate professional. He started out as, well, you know, you interviewed him, didn't you, Charles? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, he's a consummate professional. He has done everything. He's done everything and he does his homework. He's a pro, a pro right down to the tips of his fingers. And he showed up every night and did what was demanded of him. He, you know, he was terrific. He was really terrific in that show. So I also want to ask you when in the sort of process of doing a show do you decide, or not in the process, but once the show is running, when mm -hmm. or why would you decide to leave if you did leave that particular show? Well, you know, uh, I never did leave a show. I, I turned down, um, George M was gonna go on the road into a national company and I turned that down because I wanted to stay in New York City. You know, I didn't want to go on the road with it. Um, however, there were other tours that I took of shows that I did that were just, I mean, touring, Charles, is a whole other thing. I mean, it's like, I mean, I played, I toured in Camelot. We played 57 cities in 60 
days, I think. It was a bus and truck one-nighter starring John Raitt as Arthur. He produced the show himself. He produced several shows prior to this, but and he was going to do the pajama game, but the rights were rescinded because they were doing another company of it on Broadway while we were doing this. So he decided to do Camelot and they hired me to play Mordred, another villain. For some reason, I don't know why, for some reason I'm cast as the villain more often than shows that I've done. But got to play Mordred, all of these cities. We roll into a city, we check into our hotel, we go to the theater, we do a, uh, 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 a sound check of see where our dressing rooms were, see where everything was, where we had to go through what hallways, down what corridors to get to our dressing room, do the show, usually have a party afterwards. I mean, the places that we played would give us a party after the show oh. most times so that we could mingle with the board members. That's what that was about. The board members got to mingle with John Raitt and the cast. So we would have a party after each of the show and then we'd go home, go to bed, get up the next morning, get on the, have breakfast, get on the bus, travel to the next town. If it was um, a short trip, that would be great because we'd have a little more, bit more time before we had to, but many times we would get into the new town two hours prior to the performance. And we'd have to check into our hotel, get ourselves together, check out the theater and make sure that, that we're not running down the wrong hallway when we exit stage left. <laughs> and so anyhow, we're doing Camelot, right? Yeah. And we are now near the end of our, our tour. We have like, we have about, oh, maybe six more cities to go. and. There's a line that Guinevere has to Arthur, something, something on the order of, oh, Arthur, there's nothing I'd like to do more than run through the castle stark raving naked. And it got a big laugh. And it never got a laugh before. So we're on this college, in this college auditorium, state-of-the-art theater, and the students were stagehands, right? So I say to one of the stagehands, why are they laughing? What's going on? He said, streaking. Oh. I said, what's that? He said, well, after the show tonight, go out onto the lawn of the campus and you'll see. <laughs> so, so I went out to the lawn of the campus and I see these naked bodies running across the campus and people go, ah, and screaming and doing all this kind of stuff. So anyhow, I have to tell you, Charles, I, I am really one for new adventures. I love adventures. I've always been a bit of a prankster and love new adventures. So I said, John Raid, at the end of the show, when we would take our, after everybody had taken their bows, the curtains would close and he'd stand in front of the curtain and he would say, ladies and gentlemen, I know that you uh, were expecting to see pajama game. We had to change course in the middle of this and for those of you who were wanting to see Pajama Game as well, I'd like to sing a couple of songs. So there he was in his tights and his King Arthur cape singing, Hey there, you with the stars in your eyes. And there once was a man who loved a woman. He'd sing his two songs and the audience loved him. He'd say, and if you would like your program signed, autographed, please meet me out in the lobby. 
where he would have recordings to sell as well, because he was the producer of the show, you know, smart guy and a great guy, a really nice mensch, as they say. And uh, anyhow, I had taken off my clothes. I didn't, didn't know up until the last minute if I was going to do this or not. So there I was standing in my little terry cloth bathrobe in the wings, watching as though I were watching him, you know, do his two songs at the end of the show. All the other cast members had gone to their dressing rooms and were changing into their street clothes to go to the party afterwards, right? So I'm standing there kind of saying, oh, should I do this? Shouldn't I do this? And I'm thinking, well, they can't fire me. We only have five more cities of one-nighters. So I see the stage manager on the other end and the other wings across the stage give the signal and I take my bathrobe off and pull it over my head and I run right across behind him and 2,200 people go, ah, they scream like this. And, and I ran direct straight into my dressing room and started quickly changing my clothes so nobody would know. So anyhow, anyhow, I, poor, I didn't realize, I didn't even, this didn't even cross my mind. It kind of frightened John a little bit because he thought maybe some scenery was falling or something. Why are 22,000 people screaming like this after this? So anyhow, Charles, when I think of the, some of the things that I did as a young man on the road, on tours and elsewhere, it just boggles my mind. I must say I've had a fun, adventurous life. <laughs> But, but anyhow, I go to the after party and I'm sitting at this table and I happen to be sitting, I don't know why they placed me next to this woman who was like a fashion editor or a columnist or something like that from um, uh, the newspaper, the local newspaper. And um, she said, she looked at me and she said, were you Mordred? I said, yes, good to meet you. I introduced, she says, well, people are, people are saying that Modred was a streaker. Was it you? And I went, not on your life. <laughs> I winked and said, not on your life. So she wrote it in the paper the next day. She wrote it in her column. Anyhow, it, it, was, it was a fun thing. And then John said to me the next day on the bus, was it, were you the one, are you the streaker, Dibus? I said, John, come on, I'm a pro. I wouldn't do that. <laughs> and I think I had to stifle a laugh or something, but you know what? He gave me a hug. I mean, he just was such a great guy. And then I remember being out and I lived in Los Angeles for a while and uh, Carol Lawrence had become a friend. She was on the SS Norway. I got to meet her there. And we had just so happened, again, it gets to be six less than six degrees of separation. Carol Lawrence was like 10 years before me studying with the same dance teacher in Chicago that gave me the scholarship. So when I met her on the SS Norway, she was doing her act as well. I, I mentioned that to her and we stayed friends after that. So anyhow, she asked me to go to some event with her and John Raid happened to be there. And he said to her as we were leaving, we were all leaving when the event was over. He said, did my bastard son, cause Mordred is his bastard son. Did my bastard son tell you that he ran Stark Raid naked behind my back? I said, oh, no, no, John. I think that John was getting as much 
fun telling the story as I had doing it, you know? Because I was playing Jigger in Carousel in San Gabriel, California. I keep saying, how do I remember these cities? But I, geez, uh, in San Gabriel. And John Ray happened to come to see that performance. He saw me do Jigger. And of course, he was the original Billy Bigelow. And we were all asked if we wanted to stay on stage after the audience had left and John would come up and say hello. And so after we did, we gave each other a hug and all that. And he said the same thing to the cast. Did my pastor son tell you? <laughs> he wasn't gonna forget it, you know? And neither was I. It was great, it was great fun. But touring is yet a whole other episode. And it's a whole other story. Touring and being on the road. I did it with Camelot for all those one-nighters. I did it with 42nd Street for two years. I did it with Guys and Dolls, the latest, the Jerry Zacks version of it for two years. And I have to tell you, it's something else. You really have to be primed for that kind of a lifestyle because you truly are gypsies. Oops, we're not supposed to say that word anymore. But you, we traveled, we traveled from city to city to city. And if you're lucky, you'll get a tour like we had with 42nd Street, where we sat down in San Francisco for six months, six months. And you'd say in some cities, the bigger cities, you'd stay for a month or more. It was just really great, really great to do that. So um, what was I gonna tell you about? Well, it's like with the Camelot tour, we'd be on the bus and we'd never know if we'd be able to get to a restaurant or not. Or to a restaurant or not. So people would bring their own shopping stuff. They'd go to a grocery store the day before and they'd have their own pots and pans. And there would they'd ask for a little electric heater and make their own soup and stuff in their dressing rooms. And you're traveling with pots and pans and irons and all kinds of changes of clothes. We would go from Omaha, Nebraska to Sarasota, Florida. So you had to have every different kind of clothing. And you also learned when you're on tour where you wanted to be in terms of your space in the hotel. You don't want to be next to the soda machine. <laughs> all through the night, you're cling, clang, crash, coon, the soda cans and money going in and everything. So you don't want to be next to the soda machine. You don't want to be next to the elevator because you're hearing all night. It's in and out, up and down, in and out, up and down. You don't want to be there. So the best place to be is the top corner room, top floor corner room. You're away from it all. You don't hear the noise. You don't hear the parking lot outside of your windows. That's the, but you learn that after a while. And if you're smart, you'll call ahead. <laughs> you'll call ahead and request it. They may or may not honor your request, but nothing ventured, nothing gained, right? Yes. So that's all part of touring you. And, you know, just being that tight and with each other all the time, all kinds of stuff happens. I mean, I won't go even go into that. I mean, all kinds of stuff happens when you're that close and you're traveling like that all the time with each other. It's, uh, it's pretty amazing. There were a lot of broken hearts, I must say, over time, but a lot of mended hearts as well. And a lot of laughter. Mostly, the, I remember the laughter with most of the things that I've done and the wonderful friends that I've made and be able to 
have been able to keep over all these years. And thanks amazing people that I've been, had the privilege to work with, you know, the privilege to work with. It's just, and the, and the different kind of roles that I get to, to create. You know, I'm doing this thing, I think I mentioned it to you, I'm doing this thing sponsored uh, under the auspices of the Actors Fund called the Performing Arts Legacy Project. It's a 24 seven web page where each of the actors that are invited to be a part of it have their own, I don't know whether to call it a room or a page, but everything is on it. A something called uh, mapping the legacy where you list year by year from your very beginnings, every show and everything theatrical that you've ever done and write an anecdote about it and post playbills or, <clears throat> excuse me, souvenir programs or anything you have that pertains to that show shows up on this page, the Performing Arts Legacy. And as I'm going through all of my photographs of the different shows that I've done over the years, it's just, it blows me away to tell you the truth, to see the different faces and changes that I've, characters that I've been able to play. I mean, everything from the old man in Pacific Overtures to Bob Ewell in To Kill a Mockingbird, which I did at the Dallas Theater Center several years, a couple of years back. And I mean, to play that role was extraordinary. I mean, he is just an awful, awful, hateful person. But I get to do that. And you get to use aspects of yourself that are down there somewhere. You gotta dig down deep and do your homework and write out who your character is and where they're from and everything about it. And know when you get on there, you are embodying the spirit, the body and soul of who this is you're playing. And this guy was tough. He was just, and, and I was the first character in the play as the play goes to say the n-word and you know we had some fantastic afro-american actors in the company and i thought oh i was so ashamed and so embarrassed and all this stuff but we just laughed you know we would hug each other and i say well this guy's a real sob isn't he blah 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 and we talk about bob yule the character as though i wasn't him yeah. You know, I had to be friends uh, with my fellow actors and the you know, woman, um, Anastasia Munoz, who played my daughter, Mayela. Just, whew, it's a fantastic play, isn't it? Well, ever, we, had a, <clears throat> we had a great, I did it in Fort Worth at the Casa Manana and in Dallas at the Dallas Theater Center with, with uh, different Atticus Finches and what happened was that our director, this wonderful, wonderful director, um, Wendy Dan was her name, is her name. Um, what she did was take the play that had first been published as a play and written and put elements of the film dialogue, blended them together. So we did that version in Fort Worth. And so we had to unlearn, wait, 
Yeah, we did that version in Fort Worth. Then the estate of the person who wrote the original play, some they read reviews or something like that, or somebody got reviews to them and cease and desist. You can't do this play. So we had to relearn the play again to do it in Dallas. Now, wiping out all the old stuff and putting in the new stuff and we had to have the fellow who did the uh, Atticus Finch in Fort Worth couldn't stay for Dallas. We had three Atticus Finches. The first Atticus in Fort Worth became ill and couldn't go on three days before the show. So they had to get somebody who knew it well and um, you know, uh, Ira Wood, who did it, who uh, fantastic. His daughter is Evan Rachel Wood. Oh. And yeah, and he came in and he had done it years ago and knew the part. We had several rehearsals. He was in in three days as Atticus. Wow. He had to leave because he had a prior commitment. He didn't know that this was gonna happen. It happened so quickly. He had to leave. We had to change dialogue and we had to get another Atticus Finch for Dallas. So again, you know, you just have to roll with the punches. You have to go with the flow and do your best and hope, pray to the gods that it all works out for the best of all concerned. <laughs> and it did, it did on both occasions. It did. Wonderful peoples, wonderful times, wonderful stories. Oh, I, I was going to ask you, since you were bringing up the John Radon streaking in front of him, have you done other tricks or pranks like that on stage throughout your? <laughs> no, no, not, it, nothing comes up to that. However, something kind of funny did happen. I was hired to do a pop opera based on Don Juan called Again DJ. It was done out in Connecticut at a college original, and I was the bad guy who gets killed at the end of the musical. And there are motorcycles on the stage, all this kind of stuff, and I'm, I think I'm stabbed, fall to the ground, and I'm dead. I'm dead on the stage. And time to take one of the performances, time to take a curtain call, and the lights didn't go down the lights didn't go down for the, us to you know, run off stage in the dark and, and then come back up and take our bows. So I thought, I'm not gonna raise from the dead. I'm not gonna do that. So I stayed dead on the floor for the curtain calls and the other actors <laughs> walked over me to take their bows. But I said, I'll be damned if I'm gonna get up from the dead and take my call. So that was, that was the next kind of, I, I think another time I was playing Jigger in Carousel and I had to take a bow on a walk up the back of a staircase onto a platform and down the stairs onto the stage. And I, with all this bravado that Jigger had, I walked up those stairs onto the platform and I fell. And I'm falling now, I'm prone on the stairs that go down. And so I'm, instead of walking down, I thought, I'm just gonna crawl down like this awful man. 
So I crawled down the stairs onto the stage and crawled to the footlights and got up and took my polished jigger. <laughs> I mean, it's taken a chance. I mean, but I thought, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. What next? What next? What piece of clothing is going to fall off? What was going to come off? I did an audition once for. <laughs> I did an audition for the national company of Victor Victoria. Victor Victoria. Yes. So I was to play the. I went in to play the, <laughs> the Frenchman. And you know, her husband was the director, right? Oh. So famous movie director. So anyhow, I go in and I think I'm playing, going to play the Frenchman. I'm going to put on a little paste on a little French kind of mustache like that curls up like this. So it's summer, it's August, but I put the glue on first and I had the mustache left over from Pacific Overtures when I played the little Frenchman. So I put the glue on, let it dry a little bit, put a little glue on the back of the mustache, let it dry, paste it on, before I leave the apartment, so I make sure that I'm all together before I go into the rehearsal space. <clears throat> I start singing my song. And in the middle of the song, <laughs> I feel a part of it slipping off <laughs> of my face. It's starting to go like this. So as I'm singing the song, I'm going like this every time. Every time I'm singing, I'm hitting under my nose to make sure I could tap it back on. Well, anyhow, Blake Edwards, they're hysterical. They're dying in their seats because they see this poor actor trying to keep this mustache on as they're singing a song. Anyhow, I get a call later that day. My agent gets the call to tell me that I got the job to go on tour with Julie Andrews. However, what we go through. However, that same day, I had an audition to go and be seen for the show, The Scarlet Pimpernel on Broadway. <clears throat> so I went to the Scarlet Pimpernel audition and I sang my songs and I felt good about the audition. You know, I, I, I felt that I did, had done my best. So I get a call from the agent. She says, you've got another offer. They want you to be in The Scarlet Pimpernel. My dear Vinnie Liff, who set up this audition for Victor Victoria for me, wants me for that. What do I do? Do I go on the road to play this role in Victor Victoria? Or do I do a new Broadway show? I had to make up my mind and I thought, you know, I think, I mean, I really sweated it, Charles. I didn't want to disappoint my friend I thought it would, I, and he said to me on the telephone, and I, I called him, I said, then I, I said, I'm just, this is really a very, very difficult decision for me. He said, I said, you know how grateful I am to you and blah, 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 blah. And he said, I know, he said, but think of it. You'll be singing a song with Julie Andrews. How often will that happen? I mean, he really tried to get me to say, yes, I'll do this. Well, I didn't, and I, I said, I'm, I made up my mind. I called him back and I said, Vinny, I've decided to go with the Scarlet Pimpernel. And I said, I hope you'll forgive me. I hope you'll let bygones be bygones. He 
said, well, we do what we have to do. Well, Charles, thank God I took that, made that choice because that's when Julie Andrews was having voice problems. She went to that doctor who messed her up and she couldn't do the tour. Oh. So if I had said, yes, I'll take the tour, I wouldn't have had a job. But I had a nice year's run or so, maybe a year and a half in the Scarlet Pimpernel with Douglas Sills, yay, Douglas, and Christine Ebersole, yo, and Ed Dixon, and wonderful, wonderful people. Yeah. You know, Terry Mann, just fabulous. And I got to go on several times as Robespierre and the Prince of Wales in that one. was <laughs> that fun? <laughs> so we, we just never know what rosy possibilities are in front of us. We never know. Uh, what is the song from Something's Gotta Give? Who knows what the fates have in store from their vast mysterious sign. You know, we don't know what the fates have in store for us. We just have to again, spin up, show up and say yes and do your best. Do your best and be kind. That's one that we can't ever forget. Be kind. Enjoy the talents of, of your, of your uh, co-players and each other's company and get on with it. Get on with it. So your next show is the one that I'm the most eager to ask you about and I want to know everything there is to know about it because <laughs> Via Galactica. So. Oh. <laughs> oh, boy. oh boy, Charles. Boy, oh boy, Via Galactica. Well, that was, a, that was a trip into outer space if there ever was one. I mean, I'll tell you something. I kept a journal for Via Galactica and I made a home movie, Via Galactica, the making of a musical bomb. I filmed all of our rehearsals and all that was going on. And because I filmed it, I, um, I didn't have sound video then. We were told when we went into for Via Galactica that we had to sing Sophisticated Lady as one of the songs. It's a difficult song, a difficult song to learn and to sing. That we had to do a, mon a Shakespeare monologue or a monologue of our choice. And I'm trying to think what else. Anyhow, we had to do all of those things. And uh, Shirley Rich. Fa another fabulous casting person who's gone. Oh, Shirley Rich was the casting woman. And we, I went in, I did all that. Oh, and they told you that you had to know how to trampoline because the stage was going to be six trampolines. Here's another, another talk about fibbing again. I had to tell another fib for this one. <laughs> I told them that I was a trampoline champion. That in high school, I was a tramp, I was a tramp champ. <laughs> so I thought, I don't know, I sang the songs, I did the thing, blah, 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 blah. they offered me the job. And we were going to open up the first new Broadway theater to open in 30 years called the Eurus. It's now the Gershwin Theater, but it was called the Eurus when we opened it. And uh, so I went to the YMCA and I found this guy who taught trampoline. 
So I would go to the YMCA every day. And Charles, I was getting it. I was doing back flips in the air on the trampoline. I thought, when I first started working at the Starlight Theater in Kansas City, Missouri, there was this old character actor named Joe McCauley who was there for the whole season. He would do all of these character roles and he would change his beards and mustaches and prosthetic teeth and noses and everything. And he would never let anybody see him. He'd come into his dressing room to see how he was transforming into these characters. And I really admired his work. I thought this man could do anything. And I said, Joe, how, how is it that I, I would like to be like you someday? How, how is it? How? He said, never forget this, my son. Chance favors the man prepared. So I've never forgotten that. Keep preparing, keep studying, keep learning as much as you can about whatever you can. So I had to learn how to do the trampoline. I told, I mean, I told the fib, I told him I was a champ. I better not be, go in there and fall on the trampoline. Oh, so anyhow, we get to do the show and uh, the stage is, the stage is, the proscenium stage, it had a rake on it and there were six trampolines on underneath that level spaced one, two, three, four, five, six, like two, two and two trampolines with a four foot space in between each of them, right? Yes. And underneath those trampolines, there were two gigantic doors on hinges on either side of the six trampolines that would come up underneath the trampolines and hook onto each other so that if you were on the trampolines and those doors were up underneath it, they would be a hard surface. But if they took the hinges out and the doors would open, those trampolines were then usable. So what we would do is we would start to sing a song standing on the trampolines while they were hard surface. And as the song went by, without the audience really knowing what we were doing, we would space ourselves into those areas that were still hard between the trampolines and the boards would go apart. And the next thing, like the song Up is Lovely, the next thing we would start to sing and jump from one thing to the other, to the other trampoline as we were singing and flipping into all kinds of things. Well, let me tell you, at rehearsals, at rehearsals, if people were hurting themselves doing different kinds of things. One girl had an eye, was wearing an eye patch. Another person had on a foot boot because they had sprained their ankle. Another person had their arm in a sling. It's like this. So in my movie, Via Galactic of the Making of a Musical Bomb, I have everybody we rehearsed at the Eurus Theater. And we, there was a big stairwell that goes up to the second mezzanine level. We rehearsed on that level in the hallway there, in the lobby of the mezzanine. And I have people, I filmed people walking up those stairs to our rehearsal with the eye patch and the foot booth and the armband and everything, climbing up the stairs 
to rehearse. And my soundtrack, because it was silent film, I had to put a soundtrack to this film, is Mary Martin singing Climb Every Mountain. <laughs> so, so we have all of these people coming up. And we would do it in, you know, Sir Peter Hall from, from <laughs> the Royal Shakespeare. And Sir Peter Hall was there directing his first Broadway musical. And he was a lovely man. He was a lovely English gentleman. And he would always give us very positive notes every day. We're coming along, we're getting there. I know we're having problems with this or I know this was a problem yesterday, but we're getting there, we're fixing it today. We're in lovely shape, you're all beautiful. And he would keep, so of course we were all hoping for the very best. We thought this is gonna be such an innovative show. It's gonna be the hit of the year because it's unlike anything that has ever happened or will happen again if we didn't say that at the time. But, but we always got, felt that we were moving forward. And, you know, we had Raul Julia, Virginia Vestoff, Keen Curtis, fantastic people, plus a cast of people who were just amazing again. And so one day there's a point in the show where we sang a song called A New Jerusalem Will Rise, which means that we were going off to another planet. We will come to this planet and it will be a whole new world for all of us. We were all painted blue to start. And the song that I opened the show with was called We Are One, all blue. And we had these white hats that were like cones and we had this mechanism uh, we were wired inside if we put it, that went down our sleeve and these cone hats would turn circles like this, right? And when we would go to the other planet and when we came back, we were all different colors. Some of us were red, some of us were green, some of us were orange. We were all different colors. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> when I think about it now and what we went through, Charles, it was just amazing. But one, we were rehearsing, not too far away from the opening. We were rehearsing what would happen is from the fly would come this big iron step ladder that would have 10 steps down a platform, 10 steps in the other direction, a platform, 10 steps the other direction. So we would walk up the thing, be on the platform, go up the other step, steps, be on another platform. And what would happen was the steps would come down, you'd see this thing glittering, the lights would hit it and it would like sparkle because the way the lights hit the silver color of the ladder, a big piece of canvas would cover it. It was a, like, it was painted to be like a spaceship, would cover it. We would like all walk into the spaceship, go up inside in the ladder, and then you would see the spaceship go up into the fly, into the air, like we were going somewhere else. And then the next thing you would see would be just this glittering ladder come down out of the fly by itself. And we would walk down the stairs onto each platform down the next set of stairs singing this song, A New Jerusalem Will Come. Well, here we are positioned on the waiting area uh, way up there in the fly. 
and several people on the ladder. And all of a sudden there was a jerk and the ladder started swinging like this. One of the winches had broken and we were dangling on the stairwell that was hanging by the other things. Now people are screaming, everybody's frightened. People are scared, they're thinking, what happens? The, the stairwell plunged through one of the trampolines onto the sub-basement. We didn't know it was there, but I mean, all I could think of was the headlines the next day. 13 actors from incoming Broadway show dead on another. I mean, I thought, what? And it was awful. You heard people, everybody was so frightened. But thank God, everybody was safe. Everybody was okay. That was another one down. And then Peter Hall came in the next day to us and he said, he said, I am so glad that we're all here together today. I said, we did everything for your safety. If anybody doesn't want to walk up that ladder again ever, I certainly understand and you are not required to do that. We're here to protect you and we're here for yours. I mean, they really meant it. Nobody knew that was gonna happen. It was unforeseen. And it was, they took every other precaution to make sure that it was safe for all of us. Before we even walked up the ladder to do it that time, we had walked up the ladder several times so we could get the feel of what it felt like to be looking down from way up there. Anyhow, that all worked out and Peter Hall came back the next day and tried to be positive about everything and told us that we were protected and what have you. So we went on and <laughs> Everybody was there at a pre-show opening. I have home movies of Ethel Merman coming up the elevator with Richard Rogers and Ruth Gordon and Garson Kane and Fred Astaire and his sister Adele Astaire and movie stars and everybody, everybody was there. And <laughs> they had to insert in the playbill a synopsis of what the story was in case the audience didn't get it right. Just in case they didn't get it. And you heard these glorious voices of Raoul and Virginia Vestoff and Keen Curtis. And uh, it, it, of course, the, in the movie, in the movie, the next thing I shot was our opening night party, which was held in a restaurant downstairs in that same space underneath the Earth Theater. It's now a gym or something like that. And I took pictures of everybody holding champagne glasses and waiters walking by with trays full of glasses and uh, women in their dresses twirling and smiling for the camera and doing all of this. And underneath all that, because I put the soundtrack in, I put all of the radio and television reviews. Wow. So you see all this gaiety going on at the party and you hear, this is the worst thing to hit Broadway. It should never have come into space. It should go back into hours, these terrible, terrible reviews. And uh, it's funny now, but at the time it was devastating. You know, it was, it was devastating. And I remember one time there was a big mechanism. <laughs> Again, what, and give up show business? <laughs> We're on the stage, we all have this one number and this alien spaceship is supposed to be attacking us. And it's this big mechanism that has like wings 
made out of, I don't know, it was tin or aluminum or something like that. And those mechan mechanical wings would kind of flap and it would go out into the audience. <laughs> for 10 rows it was and, and we would be on the stage going ah like this well in order for all that mechanism to work it had to be oiled and it had to be in good working condition well one performances it, it the attack started to happen and we're on the stage going ah and all of a sudden we're hearing screams from the audience <laughs> oil was dripping from the mechanism onto the first 10 rows of the audience <laughs> and they were going <laughs> I mean I'm laughing about it now but the producers were like oh I hope nobody's gonna sue us <laughs> no I, I don't think there were any lawsuits or anything like that anyhow the show opened and closed in a week yeah and uh I have home movies. I went in a couple of days afterwards and I have home movies that shoot a close up of all of the playbills all tied with string all piled on top of each other and all of the stage hands taking down the different parts of the scenery. It's, uh, it was, it's sad. And then we had, we had a closing night party in one of the cast members apartments and we're all hugging and crying and, and you know, doing all that kind of stuff and because it was such again whenever you do a show it becomes such a family affair and you're all pulling for each other so it, it was sad to see it close because we all had all worked so hard on it and Christopher Gore and Galt McDermott you know of hair had written some wonderful songs some really beautiful songs I'm really surprised that people didn't pick up on it and you know before when a new show would come in the pop recording artists would make a record of one of the songs they thought might be uh, go to the charts but that wasn't happening in the 70s yeah. so nobody nobody covered any of the songs but wonderful there is a, um, a demo record that I have so at least I can remember some of those songs yeah. great just it was, and those are the, <laughs> those are the two shows. Did we talk about truckload? <laughs> not, not yet. <laughs> the two things that people want to know when I hand them my resume to go into audition for something, they want to know about is truckload and Via Galactica. <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyhow, um, so anyhow, Truckload was a brand new musical written uh, 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 by, um, come on, Divis, um, Louis St. Louis. I, I was, my mind was still with George W. George, who was, who, who was the producer of Via Galactica. But this music was written by Louis St. Louis. Fabulous stuff, wonderful stuff, and a terrific cast as well. And I was hired as my friend Vinnie Liff recommended me to Pat Birch to be her assistant on this. So I was billed as assistant to the director. 
And I was there with Pat and writing all, I think I told you this earlier about her. And it was a wonderful show about a bunch of people who were on this truck that was going from the East Coast to the West Coast with all of these people wanting to make good in their lives to do something. And um, again, a wonderful cast of people, but somehow or other it just didn't coalesce. And, and Pat worked really hard on it. And, uh, and get this for producers, we had the Schuberts, Bernie and Jerry, um, uh, and Dick Clark. Do you know who that is, Dick Clark? Yeah from American Bandstand? Yes. yes. Yeah, Dick Clark, the Schuberts, and a woman by the name of Adela Holzer. Yes, she was arrested. And um, there she was in, and I, I'll never forget her giving line readings to some of the cast members. <laughs> and we would just stand there and roll our eyes kind of and do whatever, but God, bless Patricia Birch. She gave it her all and wanted to, wanted to, and it would have, if it were given more time and it really had some wonderful music to it. And it was, it was um, life affirming the musical, but it just wasn't given the chance. It's not only were we having all different kinds of problems with all of that and the strike, I'm not sure if it was a newspaper strike or a musician strike, uh, strike, happened and uh, we couldn't, there was no way that it could have gone on. So, you know, another one bites the dust, but you, as the song goes, you pick yourself up, dust yourself off and start all over again. And it happens time and time again. Those little disappointments that we have within our career, pick yourself up, you dust yourself off and you start all over again. You, you do. <laughs> and what's the, and, and, and I, always, I always go to songs. You know, I open the refrigerator and start to sing a song. <laughs> you know, I keep thinking, walk on, walk on with hope in your heart. You've just got to keep going on, walking on. And not walk on by, as Dion would have said. So, yeah, just keep doing our, let's keep doing our thing and enjoying what we do and learn new things and making ourselves available for new things all the time, all the time. And that is where I ended part one of my interview with James Divas. And in a rare occurrence, you can go right to part two and hear the rest of the stories about his amazing career. So don't forget to tune in for that.